Energy poverty impacts one in five people. For children, this means they don't have access to lights to read or study by after dark, limiting their opportunities. Solar Buddy is here to change that, and they're doing it with the gift of light. Solar Buddy's innovative corporate program is inspiring, fun, and educational. Through it, you'll learn about energy poverty, renewable energy, assemble your very own solar light, and pen a handwritten note. The lights and letters are then gifted to children living in energy poverty. I recently distributed Solar Buddy lights in PNG and witnessed firsthand the difference a solar light can make. Visit solarbuddy.org and join the growing community of light givers. The future is brighter with Solar Buddy. Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Hello, and welcome to episode 42 of Goodwill Hunters. Today, I have Sandra Wontege Hart on the show. Sandra is Oxfam's Pacific Cash and Livelihoods Lead and is based in Vanuatu and has led cash feasibility studies in Vanuatu as well as the AMBE response. Sandra is well placed to discuss uh, the Disaster Ready program in the Pacific and also broadly disaster risk reduction in the region. Sandra, it's wonderful to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, so you have a very interesting role. Can we start with uh, what's involved with being the Pacific Cash and Livelihoods Lead in Vanuatu? Sure. Um, So my role, although I'm based in Vanuatu, I do cover and handle the portfolio of humanitarian cash transfer projects across the Pacific region for Oxfam. Um, So that includes Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands, Vanuatu, Fiji, and anywhere else in the region where these programs might happen. And for the listeners that aren't familiar with what humanitarian cash transfers are, it's basically the delivery of financial assistance instead of goods to people who have been affected by natural disasters and human-induced conflicts and other crises. Okay, wow. So I think this is a really good place to start because um, I think, you know, how we respond to humanitarian disasters, especially in the Pacific Islands, has been fairly contentious over the years and particularly whether or not to directly give cash or to give goods. So before we get into your experience of that in the Pacific, can you talk about that debate broadly and sort of how that discussion has evolved around humanitarian assistance? Sure. So in the past, say, 15 years or so in the humanitarian sector, cash has now become to be seen by the world's biggest donors, the majority of the world's governments, and most of the evidence around humanitarian assistance as being an option that is not only faster because it's less logistically heavy, um, but it's also more effective and a more dignified and flexible option for giving people aid after a disaster. And the reason that it is more effective is that people can do more 
in their local economies and create more impact for their own family and for others in their economies if they can pay for what they need in order to recover after a disaster. And of course, having that choice and that flexibility to choose what works for you based on what day or week it is and based on the size and unique characteristics of your family is something that honestly we would all prefer. And people affected by disasters are no exception. That being said, some of the critiques around cash transfer programs and assistance delivered in this way is really the big question. What do people do with their money? And how do you make sure that people don't misspend or misuse that money? So although you save a lot of money uh, in logistical costs and in overheads because it's cheaper to transfer money than to transfer a boatload of goods, uh, you do end up spending more time carefully monitoring and understanding to make sure that you're giving the right amount to people, that people are able to spend it in their local markets in a way that doesn't create inflation or other economic issues. Um, And of course, in a way that allows you to be able to report back to donors, governments, and any other skeptics in the room or in the country on what people have done with that money. And the reality globally is that across all of the cash transfer programs that have tracked results in this way, less than 1% of the money that people receive is used on antisocial behaviors or purchases. Um, So the fact of the matter is when people are in a crunch after a crisis, they are most likely to purchase things that serve their basic needs. And that's healthcare, food, water, school fees, clothing, housing materials, etc. It just seems to make so much sense. Like it, it begs the question, where did the fear come from in the first place? Like wh- where, why was there ever a reluctance to give people money? Well, I think this is where you get into power dynamics, right? And kind of the the hero mentality or the savior mentality that exists in the humanitarian aid sector. There is much more power for the giver when you give goods and you control what you are giving to people than when you hand that control over to the individual that you're giving to, right? So I think there is a power dynamic there that we need to be aware of on behalf of the giver or the savior, you know, however you consider it. But on the other hand, I think there's also the fact that people are used to doing what they're used to doing. So any change in the delivery model um, or that sort of assistance delivery behavior is always going to be viewed with skepticism like anything else that's new. Um, But finally, you know, there's also very much a north-south, you know, rich countries giving to poor countries dynamic. And that's really this cash debate exposes some of the more entrenched mentalities, whether they're intentional or not around how people in need, people living in poverty or people affected by a crisis, um, exert their levels of responsibility um, and what the impressions are around their behavior and their preferences. You know, so it you do get into a very kind of tense conversation sometimes where, you know, it's clear that there are stereotypes and misconceptions around how impoverished people Uh, spend their money. And those are not always accurate. And they're especially inaccurate after a crisis when basic needs are always going to be number one. 
Yeah, certainly. Yeah, you've, you've put that really well. I think you're in a unique position that you've seen firsthand natural disasters in the Pacific Islands and the effect they have. I mean, you've been in Vanuatu and you, I know you were involved in the response in Ambe. Um, and, I, and I think that's a really unique position to be in, especially being here in Australia where we see these disasters in the Pacific Islands right on our doorstep and yet there's a great deal of misunderstanding and misconception around how we respond to those and, and as you've said, the, the power dynamics inherent to those humanitarian responses. Um, what's it like? Like what's it like in the midst of a natural disaster there? Well, I've been in quite a few in the Pacific region. So since 2015, Tropical Cyclone Pam, Category 5, hit Vanuatu. I was here as a responder. Um, I was also responding to El Nino in the highlands of Papua New Guinea. 2016, Tropical Cyclone Winston hit Fiji. I was there for that one. Um, and of course, more recently, the Ambai response, which was a volcanic eruption in Vanuatu. So the Pacific region sits on this ring of fire, and it also sits in a cyclone corridor. So that means that you have all the seismic events. We just had an earthquake two days ago, you know, in Vanuatu. This, the ground is shaking and active all the time. So I think the majority of the Pacific Islanders across all of these islands are, you know, for them, it's not a question of if, it's a question of when, and when this year. And following on that question or answer, you know, knowing that it's going to happen to you this year, the next question is how quickly are we going to be able to get back on our feet and get back to normal? So I think that's a reality that everybody lives with on an everyday basis. It does mean that Pacific Islanders are very resilient because in a context where virtually all of the Pacific Islands are more than one island, you take the example of Vanuatu, it's 83 islands, um, multiple Pacific Islands. This is a multi-island response environment, right? And that makes the delivery of humanitarian assistance very slow, logistically very expensive, and very complicated. What that means is that on the one hand, people are resilient because they're used to not receiving aid immediately, and they, there are traditional mechanisms to anticipate and for the community to act as a first responder to help each other after a disaster. But there's also the complexity of humanitarian assistance. And that's why we've been looking at ways to deliver faster, cheaper, more effectively, and in a way that allows these super complex, despite low populations, right? These are super complex countries, multi-island economies, multi-island nations, multiple languages in the same country. Um, these are all things that make the delivery of humanitarian assistance extremely complex in a way that you don't see in mainland countries. Yeah, great point. And uh, as an aside, back in 2016, I spent a month in Vanuatu and I spent um, about a week and a half of that on the island of Tanna. And it's still one of my absolute favourite travel memories um and i i you know got to climb a volcano and got to go swimming in the blue holes around the island and most importantly i got to do a homestay for that whole time with the local family there and in response to the cyclone where they'd lost their ability to farm um i think they were coffee producers and therefore didn't have a livelihood they 
built a hut on their property, which they were renting on Airbnb, which was how I ended up there. And it was really interesting to see about over 12 months on, you know, the response to the cyclone on Tanner was very limited. It was very locally led. Um, not a lot of work had been done there and people were scrambling to find new livelihoods because their agricultural based livelihoods were no longer available to them. And I think back to that and think how beneficial cash would have been more so than goods at the time. Um, but I fully echo the sentiment that, that it's, it's it's inherently difficult to facilitate any humanitarian response, let alone in a Pacific Island country. Yeah, totally. And, you know, in if I can just add something. So I think it was in early 2016, the question started to be asked, if the Pacific is so complex and if logistics are so expensive, then why aren't we using more cash responders responses to help people in the Pacific region? And that's really where you know, my my role and other roles like mine, there are other NGOs like Save the Children, um, there's the United Nations, um, there's a multitude of partners that are now more forward-facing on cash preparedness to say, okay, why aren't we doing this? If we need to do it, how are we going to do it and where is it possible? Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Okay, so let's get into the specifics of some of these programs because they sound really interesting. Um, I would love to start with Papua New Guinea, actually, because having just returned from the highlands of Papua New Guinea, I'm convinced there can't be anywhere more difficult to work than there um, in, (laughs) in terms of the operating environment and the logistics. So um, can you tell us about that program? Um, So currently with Oxfam, we don't yet have a program in Papua New Guinea. Uh, What we'd like to look at and the approach that we're taking across the Pacific is to start with building the evidence, right? So this means doing some really good contextualized research to consult communities on how they perceive cash as a form of humanitarian assistance and how it could potentially work for them based on their experience in disasters. And trust me, every single island, every single community across multiple islands has this living memory of a natural disaster. And on the other hand, what we're doing through that process is we're also consulting with the private sector. So primarily the banks, the Reserve Bank, um, also the Chambers of Commerce to see how this sort of cash-based approach can be facilitated by the payment instruments available in country, the bank branches based on where they are, um, even actors like post offices in Western Union that send money across the country, um, logistics providers that play a role in restocking local stores, talking to all of them to then rate how feasible it is to implement cash responses on each island. And we've managed to create a scoring system that's totally locally developed. Uh, We've completed this work in Vanuatu. We worked very closely with Save the Children as they carried out a sister study in Fiji. So we've got two islands down. And as we speak, we've got two people from Vanuatu who have traveled to the Solomon Islands who are going to the field next week to carry out the same study in the Solomon Islands. And for us, the next frontier after that, because it's difficult and complex and we've got to get really good at what we're doing, would be Papua New Guinea. So we're not quite there yet, um, but I think it is a place where everybody would say delivering assistance of any sort 
is probably the most complex. And I am not convinced that cash can't work there. It's a question of how and where. Yeah. Yeah, I really like the point that you made there on the private sector. And I think we forget what an important development partner um, local banks are in the Pacific Islands, um, as well as the broader private sector. But but local banks, and, 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 and you would know far more about this than I do, so please elaborate. But I imagine that um, partly the role of banks is looking at their appetite for lending to small social enterprises um, and supporting, um, you know, local entrepreneurs to start businesses in the area. Um, what broadly, like, what is the role of local banks in the program? Um, the primary role of local banks is really to act as the payment mechanism, right? So when you are delivering cash to a bunch of people in order to help them get back on their feet, the easiest way to do that is to go through the experts. And those are the banks who are those who are in charge of making payments everywhere, every day, um, across multiple islands in the local economy in a given place. And what that also allows NGOs to do is to make sure that they're compliant with the regulatory framework, right? So the central bank rules around who you can pay and how. The easiest way to get around that is by partnering with, again, those who are in charge, and those are the banks. So usually the banks will be able to tell you not only where are they operating, but also how do they reach out to some of the most remote communities in the country, um, it's very interesting in the Pacific Islands because there's a number of banks that actually have rural air agents that run out to the islands with a lockbox or a briefcase and literally bank people in places where there's no brick and mortar branch. Um, the banks also play a role because they employ people from those communities. You know, so the more those you work with a local branch to deliver payments, the more you're also creating employment revenue and potentially new clientele for that bank. And that really leads into financial inclusion. If you're going to pay thousands of people as part of a humanitarian response and half of those people don't have bank accounts and you work with a bank to pay them, then it suddenly becomes really interesting to the bank to try and get those people some bank accounts so that they can preserve that clientele. So just a quick anecdote from the Ambai response in Vanuatu. We worked very closely with ANZ um, Bank and also the National Bank of Vanuatu. And in the case of ANZ, they were highly organized. Same with National Bank of Vanuatu. But what was very unique about the National Bank of Vanuatu was that they also had suffered from the volcanic eruption on Ambai. And in fact, the teller, they had adopted in the response location where everybody was displaced on the biggest island in Vanuatu, in Santo, maybe not everyone, let's say about 85% of the population of Ambai. The tellers from the branch on Ambai became the tellers that delivered payments to the displaced people from Ambai on Santo. You know, And so you really see how banks take it upon themselves to play a role because ultimately it's in their longer term interests. Yeah, wow, that's that's so interesting. Let's talk more about that response in Ambai. Um, as you said, it was a volcanic eruption. Um, there's numerous volcanoes in Vanuatu, aren't there? I think what in the hundreds, probably. Um, I think I think it's like in the dozens, but it's right. still astronomically high. <laughs> yeah. 
it's I think there is there is a statistic that on average every individual in Vanuatu lives within 40 kilometers of a volcano wow gosh that's That's amazing um so can you tell us about that response because as I said earlier like you're in a unique position where you've actually led a humanitarian response and I think I think that's um I just find that fascinating so can you talk about that response and how it played out Sure. Um, so, you know, in a way, every humanitarian response is obviously not, not never the right timing. But in this case, we it was very opportune timing because we had just wrapped up this feasibility study where we were able to pinpoint island by island in Vanuatu, high, medium, low feasibility. This is where we can do cash. This is where we'll try. And this is where we'll leave it to the government to do food or other assistance. And it just so happened that the majority of displaced people um, in that volcanic eruption moved to one of the highest feasibility islands in the country, which is Santo. So it's the second largest economic center. And for us, it gave us a double opportunity. So the first opportunity was that we had all this data from all six provinces of Vanuatu. Almost, I think we had data from over 12 islands in the country. Santo was one of them. And we were able to immediately say, we already know how we're going to deliver cash to affected people in this province. We know how many banks are there. We know how many people they serve. We also have already conducted surveys with people who live there in order to understand whether they're receptive to it or not. So that allowed us to really kick off things in a totally new way. We had just spoken to the government of that province, Sama province, a couple of months prior when we ran the assessment. So we were able to establish a very close relationship at the provincial level and get buy-in for what was the first multi-purpose cash grant response in the entire Pacific region. Um, and that was a big game changer. So despite you know some skepticism, we had already gained ground by consulting local government, local people, local communities around what cash was and whether they thought it would be useful. And the answer was yes. And the next answer was, let's try. Um, And so that response, I think, would really change things in Vanuatu because you had a group of evacuees, so over 2,700 families um, that were displaced, as well as host families that were hosting people in their households. That's equivalent to over 13,000 people who benefited from this program. They received checks monthly from two banks, um, and they used those checks to go buy what they needed to rebuild their lives. Host families also got a supplement to take care of those that they had taken in. And what we saw was one payment and multi-sectoral recovery. So with one payment, people bought food, they bought hygiene items, Elderly people and people with disabilities got health care. People bought building material to rebuild their houses, both on Ambai and new houses on Santo. And what was crazy was, despite it just being a three-month program, the savings rate increased by more than 10% amongst this group of people who were already displaced, right? So that tells you something about people using their money responsibly and trying to be resilient for the future because everybody, I tell you, um, buy-ins included, are thinking forward towards the next disaster and the next situation. So now in Vanuatu, things have changed in the sense that cash 
as a humanitarian response is officially on the table. Um, and the Ambayans also have been able to tell the rest of the country about how different it was as an experience to receive assistance in this way. So I think it was really a win-win all around. Um, we also now have a brilliant team that knows how to do this sort of response in Vanuatu, which I think is unique and definitely capacity-wise, it's also a bonus. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So I have two questions out of that. The first one is how did you actually administer the funds? Because, I mean, who did you give them to in the family and how did you give them out? My second question is you said there that they liked to receive the funds in this way and they like to receive support in this way. And that sounds like a really interesting evaluation. So how did you find that out? Was that just anecdotal or did you actually conduct an evaluation? So we had started with um, over 400 surveys from Santo, just asking people and consulting people whether cash would be useful for them and how they would plan to use it after a disaster. Before we, you know, once the volcanic eruption happened and this big displacement movement happened in Santo, we also ran a baseline assessment. And that was really to confirm our assumptions around what people's basic needs were and whether those basic needs could be met by buying things in their local shops. So we talked to local shopkeepers, local vendors, displaced people and host families to understand if that market environment could accommodate payments um, to this influx of people that usually are not around. We also month on a monthly basis checked prices in the market to make sure that there was no price manipulation happening. Um, so we, we did make the extra effort to make sure that people would be able to buy what they needed. And in doing that, we also confirmed the amount that we should be giving people, which was a calculation between the minimum household expenditure on basic items. So this is really household items, food, water, hygiene, health, education, um, and transportation, sorry. Uh, as well as what the basic needs were that people, that displaced families said were urgent. And those lined up in some of the same categories. So it was always number one, food, hygiene, water, housing, education, healthcare. So all of those things were buyable, so could be purchased in Santo. So then we said, okay, let's go ahead. The mechanics of a cash transfer program are pretty intense. They're very complex. Um, you need very, very good planning. Um, and it's it's kind of like an assembly line, right? So what we did was we worked with a local accounting firm to speed up that process, but also to make sure that we're lo using local private sector companies that are used to accounting for big volumes of payments to help us do this work. Um, we pre-printed checks that look kind of like a payroll check where you rip off the check at the bottom and you have who's giving it to you and for what at the top. Um, we, we ran a registration drive for a month. And at the registration drive, we did community awareness at every location a couple of days before and told everybody, listen, we know that you have no household, right? So the typical humanitarian assistance will give it to the head of the household. But with displaced families, we said, listen, we know that your household is back in Ambai. What we'd like to do is select the person in your family that usually does the grocery shopping for the family. 
in order to receive this assistance. And when you come to register, bring a form of ID and bring another person of the family who agrees that this should be the nominated recipient, just so that you have like a witness and you don't run into issues later. Many people didn't have their IDs or their IDs had been lost or left back on Ambai, back on the island. So another step in the process for us was that we had a photo ID counter. If somebody came up, registered, we would take their registration information. We did it all on tablets, which speeded up the process. Um, and then sent them over to take a picture for an Oxfam-issued government-certified ID. And that really was a bank requirement. In order to cash a check, you need to show some form of ID. So we printed over 800 IDs <laughs> for recipients as well. And then, you know, two weeks later, there was distribution date. So people would come with their registration slip. Um, and their ID that we had printed for them, pick up their check. And the registration location was always right next to the bank. In the case of ANZ, the, the, sorry, the distribution location was right across the street. So people would pick up their check, be accompanied by one of the village chiefs across the street to the bank, cash out the check, and then go shopping. In the case of National Bank of Vanuatu, they went the extra mile. They actually sat at the distribution site so that people went into one room, picked up their check, and then walked into the next room and cashed it out on site from a lockbox. And most of the time, it was the teller that they could remember from the same branch that they used in Mumbai, which was pretty interesting. So complex, complex process, but doable. Wow. You've, you've proven my point there that I make a lot on this show, that not-for-profit organizations have this tremendous logistical capability that they don't talk about a lot it's it's like this amazing capability that that you just have to have in order to run these programs that very few other companies in the world not working in international development would have yeah I mean I I'm not sure that others don't have it I think churches have it I think any sort of I you know it's just breaking something very complex into pieces and steps. You know, that response, that Ambai response in Vanuatu showed the rest of the country, the rest of the NGOs in the country, and also other islands that it is possible to deliver checks, over, nearly 3,000 checks a month to people as a form of humanitarian assistance. You know, and that people who had never done it before, so our staff, in Vanuatu, the bank staff that supported, the accounting firm that supported, the government officials, the chiefs who had never done it before were able to do it for the first time and do it well. So I think, you know, it's just, it's a mentality thing. If you think the barrier is there, the barrier is there. But you don't know if you don't try. Of course, we didn't have any major security issues Um like you would in places like Papua New Guinea, depending on where you are. If you're in the highlands, definitely that's a risk. Um, so we were lucky to have such a receptive operating environment. But honestly, in any crisis, humanitarian crisis, when you work closely with community organizations, um, when you work closely with community members like local chiefs and private sector actors that are embedded in those communities, everybody wants to to get back to normal, you know, and part of that is helping the people around them. 
so I think it's sure it's really complicated and it it seems like a massive logistical feat but I think the bottom line is that if we could do it for the first time in Vanuatu um I think it's possible elsewhere you know and it's not exclusive it's just a question of sharing and doing it over and over again in order to get better at it definitely and I think if, as you've said this this program is now proof of concept that cash works and that's really exciting like as you said cash is now on the table and I, and I think that's a massive development now I believe that is blockchain somehow involved either in this program or another one like where does blockchain come into this yeah so we've um we've definitely we're definitely somebody's pressed fast forward in Vanuatu because things are moving very very quickly um they i really feel like the the cash transfer team with Oxfam big shout out to them the majority of the team are youth right and the majority of the people who have been running these responses here are um youth volunteers and youth employees including from the Vanuatu Red Cross and i think what that gives you is a group of individuals that don't hesitate um that are not thinking inside the box anymore but that also are super tech savvy and very tech forward when it comes to implementing new solutions so yes we've just run between let's say april and the end of june this year we successfully ran a pilot to deliver payments to two communities in Vanuatu on the blockchain. Um so we used a blockchain platform to deliver electronic vouchers in the form of a tap and pay card um to nearly 100 recipients in two communities just outside Port Vila. And you know, it was a test both of this, you know, the robustness of the blockchain technology. So really kind of saying hello blockchain world you say it's great but if it can't work in Vanuatu then <laughs> then you know let's stress test it right let's see if this globally renowned thing that's going to change the world can actually work for communities in one of the most complex and remote environments globally right and let's see if we can do it in a way that works for them and that they can participate in Um so it was really fascinating. Local vendors got smartphones. Some of them had never probably seven over 70% of the local vendors had never used a smartphone before. So they're learning smartphones on the fly. The app was really easy in local language which is Bishlama, the pidgin that exists in Vanuatu. Um and all they had to do was tap in to a little calculator on the app the amount that people were going to pay. select the categories of things that they were going to pay for and then just simply tap the recipient's card against their phone and from there everything was automatic so we were able to see live on a dashboard in our office who was buying what when from which vendor instantly um and recipients also i think it also kind of shifted there was a mentality shift in how assistance can be received and the role that communities and community vendors can play. So, you know, at first people kind of got these plastic cards and were like, what do you mean I have to pay for things with this? Most of the recipients did not have a debit card. Um had never had a debit card. Some of them never had bank accounts. Um yet they found out very quickly that they could take one card 
pay for something at one vendor, walk five minutes down the road, pay their electricity bill at another vendor, you know, and then on the, the way home, buy a bunch of bananas from another vendor um, and do that in a way that, you know, they didn't need to count their change. <laughs> they didn't need to go to the bank to get more money. Um, and so what that did was it made the, the neighborhood itself really involved in the response. It means that local vendors are empowered to help the people in their community who are recipients. Um, it also means that recipients, you know, we had a few recipients who deliberately tried to buy something at every single vendor just to make it fair. So, you know, you had this, a community-based economic ecosystem that I honestly think would, in the case of a disaster, accelerate recovery in a way that's really from the bottom up. And it becomes easier, faster, more transparent, and more traceable because of this blockchain technology that really is the infrastructure that it runs on. If you asked a recipient and a vendor today or tomorrow, do they know what blockchain is and how it works? They would say, I heard about it from Oxfam, but you know, the interface is really just easy to use. You don't need to know the complexities of cryptocurrencies and whatnot to use it. And I think that broke a barrier in the way that blockchain globally is being spoken about. This is one of the only cases at the community level where blockchain has actually been well received and used successfully. Wow, that's a great that's that's great. Wow. Um we're hearing more and more about how blockchain is being used in the international development sphere and it's so exciting. I think to finish, I, I think you touched on it um towards the end there, but we've talked a lot about disaster response, but disaster response is inextricably linked to disaster readiness and disaster preparedness. Um and what I've understood from you is that so much of disaster readiness is is knowing what sort of programs you can implement quickly with some evidence base that they're going to work. Um, but to close, could you comment on just a little more on the disaster readiness side of things and, and the work that's being done in that space? Sure. Um, I think, you know, honestly, before coming into this role, I had done some disaster preparedness, but I was more on the response side. Um, but when you're on the response side, you're always in this position where you're like, God, I wish I had an, an assessment to tell me how and where to do this, you know, or gosh, I wish I already had tested this approach or this tool before I have to deploy it, you know, in the heat of a response. So I've used a lot of that thinking in my current role and what that really reveals in places like Vanuatu, which is one of the most disaster prone countries globally, is that Humanitarian agencies, NGOs, local governments, and civil society need to be able to pivot very quickly between testing and learning and researching and doing. And that's how you get better at response, right, is really having the evidence at your disposal that's recent, that's contextualized, like we did with the feasibility study, that inevitably will better inform your response build the relationships you need for that response to happen and help that response happen more quickly um, in a way that the population is receptive to. And I think the, the move from step one feasibility study, step two on by response was a good one. So then you get back into pre preparedness mode. And I think the key is don't rest, test 
and learn. And that's where the blockchain pilot came in. So our philosophy in this cash transfer preparedness program that spans Vanuatu and elsewhere is in peacetime, pilot and train your team, right? Pilot in order to build a toolkit of approaches that you know can work and that you know your team knows how to use. That's a learning process in and of itself. But when you're done piloting, make sure that you're training your team and others so that they are familiar with what you need to do when a disaster comes. Um, and I think that's that's the key is to have this sort of continual, sh- you know, you're bouncing from one foot pilot and learn to respond to pilot and learn. That's the way that you do preparedness in a way that accelerates and really enhances response. Certainly. Thank you so much, Sandra. Your insights have been so interesting and it's really wonderful to um, to illustrate the realities of humanitarian response more, which is what you've done. So thank you so much for that. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great. <laughs>